News of the Times. Wicked Wednesdays. Forgotten Ripper Victim. Welcome to News of the Times. In today's episode, we delve into the intriguing realm of potential victims beyond the infamous canonical five associated with the enigmatic figure known as Jack the Ripper. As part of our ongoing Whitechapel Wednesday series, we previously explored the case of Martha Tabram, a woman whose murder has sparked discussions about its possible connections to the Ripper. In today's episode, our focus shifts to three more individuals within the vicinity, each historically suggested as potential victims of the notorious Ripper. Rose Milet, the 20th of December 1888, Alice Mackenzie, the 17th of July 1889, and Francis Coles, the 13th of February 1891. Now, none of these cases were officially accepted as Ripper murders by the police at the time. Rather, they have been suggested historically as possible additional Ripper victims. This episode also excludes the numerous dismembered body torsos found not far from Whitechapel around the same time that we covered in the Thames Torso Murders episode. Were they or weren't they Ripper victims? A look at the three potential Ripper victims' murders is today's episode of Wicked Wednesdays. We hope you enjoy the show. Case 1. Rose Milet. It is 1888. Whitechapel and Greater London have been terrorised by an elusive serial killer who murders and mutilates women of unfortunate circumstances. On the 20th of December, just shy of Christmas, another heap which is revealed to be a body of a murdered woman, is found on the streets. The body is still warm. From the Edinburgh Evening News, the 20th of December, 1888. A poplar mystery. Woman found dead. The Press Association says the police sergeant Golding this morning found the dead body of a woman lying in Clark's Yard, High Street in Poplar. Mrs. Thompson of the East India Arms, the High Street, states that shortly after three o'clock this morning, she heard the dog bark very loudly, but on looking out of her window, she could see nothing. The police have instituted inquiries, and Mr. Chivers, the coroner's officer, sent a special messenger to the coroner, asking him to consent to a post-mortem examination. There were no distinct marks of violence, but there was a great discoloration of the face, neck and arms. Our regular subscribers will know the police at the time were overwhelmed. There were many official attempts to reduce the numbers of killings laid at the door of the serial killer, who continued to roam the streets freely. One question that arose repeatedly with the canonical five victims is why was there no noise made 
from the victims, why was there no call for help? In the inquest held once again by Wynne Baxter, the medical testimony believes that they have an answer as to how it was done so that the victim could make no noise. From the Echo, London, the 21st of December, 1888. Is this another murder? The Poplar Mystery? The Woman's Strangled? Post-mortem examination. The suspicious affair at Poplar, now in the face of the evidence adduced at the inquest, today assumes a very deep importance. It is at once induced the fear that another mysterious crime has been committed. The woman, says the doctor, met her death by suffocation, and there were finger marks on her throat. The inquest was opened at Poplar Town Hall by Mr. Wynne Baxter today. The inquiry was into the circumstances attending the death of a woman unknown, whose body was discovered lying in Clark's Yard, the High Street Poplar, yesterday, under circumstances which lead to the supposition that she had been the victim of foul play. The Discovery of the Body Police Sergeant Robert Golding, 26K, stated that at 4.15am yesterday he was on duty in High Street Poplar in company with Police Constable 470K when, as they were passing Mr Clark's yard, he saw a heap of something lying some distance up the yard. He found it to be the body of a woman. She was lying on her left side with her left arm under her. The right leg was under her and the left at full length. The body at that time was warm. The clothes were not disarranged and the body was lying parallel with and under the wall. He left the constable in charge and went for the divisional surgeon whose assistant came and pronounced life extinct. At the mortuary he found one shilling in silver and tuppence in bronze together with a file which was empty. The woman was wearing a black dress made of alpaca, a brown stuff skirt and a red flannel petticoat. She also had on a dark tweed double-breasted jacket, blue striped stockings and side spring boots. She had no hat on, and her hair was all rough and fell over her face. An earring was in the right ear. He examined the ground where he found the body, but he could not find any evidence of a scuffle. The features of the woman were familiar to him, and he believed she was an unfortunate. Thomas Dean, a blind maker of 153 High Street Poplar, deposed that he had passed through Clark's yard late on Wednesday night. He did not notice the body then. He must have done so had he been there. His house was right opposite the yard, but during the night he heard no noise. The finger marks on the throat. Mr Matthew Brownfield of 170 East India Road Poplar, divisional surgeon of police, 
who had made a post-mortem examination, said the body was that of a woman of about 30 years of age, five foot two in height, complexion fair, hazel eyes, and moderately stout. She was well nourished. Blood was oozing from the nostrils. On the right side was a slight abrasion. On the right cheek was a scar, apparently of old standing. The mark on the nose might have been caused by any slight violence. On the neck he found a mark which had evidently been caused by a cord drawn tightly around from the spine of the back to the lobe of the left ear. He had since found that the mark could be produced by a piece of fourfold keycord. Beside that mark, the impressions of the thumbs and middle and index fingers were plainly visible on either side of the neck. There were no injuries to the arms or legs. On opening the brain, he found the vessels engorged with a dark, almost black, fluid blood. The lungs were congested and the heart normal. The kidneys were congealed but not diseased. The stomach was full food, which had only recently been eaten. There was no smell or sign of poison in the stomach. The cause of death, in witnesses' opinion, was sublocation by strangulation. There was no sign of a struggle, except the mark on the cheek. When questioned, he went on to say that he thought the murderer must have stood at the rear of the woman, and having the ends of the string wrapped around his hands, thrown the cord round her throat, crossing his hands, was strangling her. He continued that he thought the cord was pulled till the after death had ensued. The cord, being tight, would have prevented the woman holding out for help. The doctor's distinct opinion both medical doctors gave it as their opinion that the deceased was strangled with a cord. Her neckcloth was puckered up at the back. But Dr. Brownfield thinks that the injuries were on the throat could not have been inflicted by a man thrusting his hand between the neckcloth and thus choking the deceased. Indeed, Dr. Brownfield has experimented on his own assistant. I had Dr. Harris completely under control at once, he states. Should the crime have been the work of the Whitechapel miscreant, Dr. Brownfield thinks it would quite possibly be that the other victims in the East End were first strangled, then mutilated. It takes some time to track down the identity of the strangled woman, who went under a number of different aliases as was common in the day. From the London Evening Standard, the 26th of December, 1888, the Poplar Murder. The police have at last succeeded in establishing the identity of the unfortunate woman who was murdered on Thursday in Clark's Yard, High Street, Poplar. She was known in Poplar by the name of Downey, or Down and in Whitechapel, which it has been discovered was the last neighbourhood in which she resided, 
by the name of Davis. Both these, however, were assumed names. The police secured the attendance at the popular mortuary yesterday of Elizabeth Usher, the head nurse at the Bromley Sick Asylum, where the deceased woman was stated to have been an inmate. Miss Usher immediately recognised the woman as Rose Milet, who had been an inmate of that institution on several occasions. Little doubt is entertained that the name under which Miss Usher recognised her is her real name, for the books of the asylum were referred to, and it was discovered that she last entered the asylum on the 20th of January, 1888, and discharged herself on the 14th of March. On each occasion she went in under the same name. The deceased had informed most of her acquaintances that she had a mother living in Baker's Row or Old Montague Street, Spitalfields. The police, however, failed to discover any relatives in this neighbourhood, but have found that the deceased resided in a common lodging house in George Street, Spitalfields. The house is next door to the lodging house in which the last victim of the Whitechapel murderer lived. Mary Smith, the deputy of this establishment, was somewhat reticent last evening regarding the sad affair, but described the deceased as being a very respectable person. Mrs Smith said the deceased had lodged with her for about three months, and had, until within the last fortnight, had a companion in a man named Goodson, but this man had not seen the deceased for the past two weeks. The last time Mrs Smith saw the deceased was on Wednesday night, when, between six and seven o'clock, Rose Milet left for Poplar, Mrs Smith giving her tuppence to pay her tram fare. The deceased was seen the same evening at about midnight by Jenny Hill. At half-past two she was seen in Commercial Road by Alice Groves, who lodged with the deceased at 18 George Street, outside the George with two men, apparently seamen. When seen by these two women, she was the worse for liquor. A young girl residing in High Street Poplar named uh, Neos Green had made a statement regarding two men, apparently sailors, whom she saw under suspicious circumstances near the scene of the murder. She says that a short time before Sergeant Golding found the body of Rose Milet, two sailors came up to her in a great hurry in the high street and inquired the way to the West India docks. She directed them, whereupon one of the men said to the other, Make haste, Bill, and we shall be in time to catch the ship. The police are endeavouring to follow up this clue, but up to midnight their endeavours have not been successful. Attempts are made to follow up on the possible suspects of the two seamen, but nothing comes of it. The case grows cold, and Rose Milet becomes another statistic of the day of a murdered unfortunate in London. Case 2. Alice Mackenzie 
the 17th of July, 1889. Constable Walter Andrews was doing his usual rounds when he discovered a female body on the pavements of Castle Alley. Whitechapel High Street was just around the corner. The body was found with her skirt pulled up above her knees and a superficial cut from her left breast down to her navel. She was dead. From the Western Times, the 17th of July, 1889, another Whitechapel murder, escape of the assassin. At about one o'clock this Wednesday morning, a woman was discovered in Castle Alley, Whitechapel, with her throat cut under circumstances which recall the tragedies in the same district a few months back. And in this case also, the murderer has apparently escaped, leaving no trace behind. The discovery was made by the constable on the beat. The body was found lying in the shadows of a doorway with blood flowing from a wound in the throat and also from a terrible gash in the stomach inflicted with a sharp knife or razor. The officer gave the alarm to the official at Commercial Road Station. The divisional surgeon was sent for. The unfortunate woman appeared to have been about 40 years of age, and from her dress it is supposed that she belonged to the unfortunate class. The neighbourhood is closely watched, but so far as is known, the murderer has escaped, leaving no trace of his identity. Was this truly another victim of Jack the Ripper? Reporting from the House of Commons and Parliament, the Western Times seemed to think so. From the Western Times, the 18th of July, 1889, London Correspondence. The police have little doubt that the murder committed last night or early this morning in Whitechapel was the same hand that struck terror through the East End in the autumn of last year. The locality is the same, and the mode of action, as far as it was carried, was identical. It is believed that the murderer was disturbed at his work, and was prevented from leaving it in the finished state, which marked the outrages of last year. The recurrence of the murders, after a prolonged interval, lends colour to a theory held in some quarters that the fiendish work is done either by a Malay sailor or someone who has lived on the Malayan peninsula and whose visits to London are paid at the close of a sea voyage. The terror in Whitechapel is as acute tonight as it was at any period of the epidemic last year. The daring character of the murderer gives birth to the apprehension that the blows of last night will speedily be followed in the same locality or another. Panic is the best word to describe the feelings of the public, police and government. An inquest is held on the body of Alice Mackenzie to attempt to grasp even the smallest of clues as to who the likely murderer could be. From the Western Times, the 19th of July, 1889, the Whitechapel murder. 
the resumed inquest. Very little has transpired today to clear the mystery surrounding the murder of Alice Mackenzie on Wednesday in Castle Alley. Beyond a few arrests, the most important event in connection with the case today was the resuming of the coroner's inquiry. Both people and police are keenly on the alert for the anticipated reappearance of the murderer. Extra police who were withdrawn from the district just preceding the recent crime have been recalled, and throughout the whole of last night to early this morning the vicinity was very animated with the copious presence of excited crowds and additional policemen, both uniformed and in plain clothes. The excitement of the inhabitants, whose paramount topic of conversation was the personality, whereabouts and marvellous astuteness of the notorious but mysterious criminal, was the means of several persons being inconvenienced temporary in detention at police stations early this morning. The inquest on the body of Alicia Mackenzie, the victim, was resumed this day before Dr. Wynne Baxter. Despite Inspector Reed deposed to finding under the body a short clay pipe and a bronzed farthing stained with blood produced, witness described the condition and position of the body and stated two constables constantly patrolled the alley. There was no doubt as to the deceased's name. He had discovered Mog Cheeks, referred to the previous day, had lodged with her sister on the night of the crime. The deceased belonged to the very lowest class. Dr. Phillips, divisional surgeon of the police, deposed to being called and described the finding of the body he had made a post-mortem. The rigor mortis was well marked, especially in the limbs. Below the left collar was a bruise about the size of a shilling and a larger bruise below the junction of the collarbone with the breastbone. There was a superficial wound seven inches long below the right nipple and trailing off from this were wounds extending across the navel and other scored wounds extending from the large wound but only skin deep. The top of the right thumb was missing. The wound in the neck was four inches long and almost divided part of the muscle. It extended to the front part of the neck below the chin. There was a second incision joining the first over the cartroid artery, which was seized down to the membrane covering the vertebrae. He had not the slightest doubt that the cause of death was syncopoke arising from the loss of blood through the cardioid vessels, and that death was almost instantaneous. Margaret Check said the deceased lived with her for 18 months. She did not see her after the morning of Thursday. Margaret Franklin, costermonger's widow, stated that she saw the deceased about 12 o'clock on Tuesday night. She was with other girls at the top of Flower and Dean Streets. Deceased seemed to be sober when they spoke. Deceased went towards Whitechapel.
Was this the return of Jack the Ripper? Changed had been instituted by what was seen as the utter bungling of the police at the time. Sir Charles Warren had been replaced as the police commissioner by James Munro. His writ was to report to the Home Office immediately with updates. He is said to have confirmed to the Home Office that it was his belief that the murderer of Alice Mackenzie was the same murderer as the notorious Jack the Ripper slayings. However, it was a contentious issue. Some believed, given the superficiality of the wounds, that this was not another victim to add to Jack's list, but rather a different killer. Neither proposal was of any help to the media fiasco encircling the unsolved, horrific slayings that seemed to take place on the streets of Whitechapel with no hindrance whatsoever by the police. From the London Observer, the 20th of July, 1889, The Murder Plague, Whitechapel Terrorised by a Ghastly Crime, More Mysterious Than Ever, Fullest and Latest Details. The murder fiend is at this terribly ghastly work again. Countless pens are taken up against to write up the details of a mysterious and horrible crime in Whitechapel, and the heart of the nation is again harrowed by revolting stories of murder and mutilation. But what is there new to be said? Everything is on the same lines with the series of barbarous atrocities of last year, so nearly indeed does the crime tally with its ghastly predecessors that for all purposes we might as well tear out from the journals of that date a column or two describing one of last year's murders. I'll alter the name here and streets there, and the sad tale would be complete. Here is the story of the latest work of the Whitechapel fiend in all its bareness. In the early hours of Tuesday morning at about ten minutes to one, in point of fact, when a dark, dreary drizzle had set in, and the streets were cleared of almost all but the wretched, homeless outcasts. Police Constable Andrews, 272H, while walking around his beat and passing through Castle Alley, Whitechapel, saw a woman lying on the ground, about five feet from Messrs. King's premises. The officer at first thought that the woman was the worst for drink, or one of the many outcasts who nightly frequent the alley to seek a shelter. On turning his light down, he was horrified to find a woman lying on her back with a terrible gash in her throat. The skirt and petticoat were turned up, and the constable could see that there were gashes about the abdomen, but these did not appear to be very deep. Andrews blew his whistle, and directly afterwards several officers appeared upon the scene. The constables, acting upon instructions, did not shift the body from the position in which it was found, until after Dr. George Bagster Phillips, divisional surgeon, and Dr. Brown, 
and examined it. They, however, felt the face, which was warm, thus proving that the murder had been committed but a very short time before the constable discovered the body. The doctors, together with several inspectors and detectives attached to the H Division, were quickly on the spot. The former, having examined the body, pronounced life extinct. Then they took minute details of the position of the body, which was lying in a pool of blood. The body was then conveyed on to the Whitechapel mortuary in Old Montague Street, where the police gave a description of the deceased. The body appeared to be a woman about 40 years of age who evidently had been a member of the poorest class of unfortunate women who infest the principal thoroughfares of the East End. She was about five feet five inches in height, of fair complexion with dark brown hair. A tooth was missing, and in this respect the case bears singular resemblance to those of the two other women who were murdered in Bucks Row and Hanbury Street, as each of these had a tooth missing. There was no covering to the head. The scene of the murder is probably one of the lowest quarters in the whole of East London, and a spot more suitable for the terrible crime could hardly be found on account of the evil reputation borne by this particular place. The woman's character, the nature of the wound and the scene of the crime naturally connect this murder with several similar murders of last year. Beyond the fact that the murderer seems to have cut and hacked his victim with diabolical fury, one other important item was revealed. It was that when the body was removed, the portion of the pavement thus uncovered was found to be perfectly dry, whereas it was drizzling with rain during the greater part of the night, and as the rain came on, as near as can be judged, at about twenty minutes to one o'clock, at that time may pretty safe be averred to as the hour at which the foul crime was committed. Like the other unfortunate victims averred to be connected to the Ripper, Alice's killer was not found, and the case became a cold case. Case 3. Francis Coles. The 13th of February, 1891. Like Rose and Alice, Francis Coles's body was discovered in the early hours of the morning by a police constable doing his beat. Her body was found lying in an archway of the Great Eastern Railway. This case was intriguing as the time is very definitely set. Also, the location was a busy one. Any cry from her would have been heard. Constable Thompson avowed that he had passed the same archway fifteen minutes prior, with no body there. He stated that he had heard a man's footsteps walking away. It was then, by shining his torch under the railway arch, that he discovered the body of Francis Coles. 
From the Sheffield Evening Telegraph, the 13th of February, 1891. Jack the Ripper at work again. Another Whitechapel atrocity. Woman brutally murdered. Soon after one o'clock this morning, a police constable on duty in Chambers Street, Whitechapel, discovered the dead body of a woman lying in a pool of blood beneath an archway. The throat was deeply cut, the head being nearly severed from the body. The corpse was taken to the nearest mortuary and the constable informed his superior officers of the discovery. The affair quickly gave to rumours that Jack the Ripper had resumed his ghastly work. The police, however, state that except for the wound in the throat, the body has not been mutilated. The Central News says Whitechapel is this morning again the scene of one of those terrible tragedies which has made its name notorious throughout the world. As in previous cases, the victim today is a woman, apparently of the age of 25. From the appearance of the deceased and the circumstances surrounding the case, the police infer that the woman was leading an abandoned life. The place selected for the crime was one similar to those previously selected by the fiend of Whitechapel for the perpetration of his horrible deeds, and the only reason for doubting whether this latest crime is really the work of Jack the Ripper is the fact that beyond the terrible gash in the throat there were no mutilations on the body. This, however, may well be accounted for by the probable fear on the part of the murderer of interference in his work. The special representative of the Central News learns from full inquiries made on the spot that Police Constable 240H, a young officer of only a fortnight's service in the Metropolitan Police Force, saw lying in a dark archway the body of a woman its position not against the side of the arch, but just in the centre, and the policeman first naturally enough thought that it was a drunken case, and he proceeded to arouse the woman. A second glance showed that blood lay in a pool under the woman's head, and then holding his bull's-eye closer still, he saw that the woman had been brutally murdered, with a terrible gash having been inflicted in the throat. So great had been the force with which the knife had been drawn across the throat that the head was almost severed from the body. The deed could only have been committed a short time previously, for the body was warm, as was also the blood which lay in the pool. The hair of the deceased was dishevelled, and there was a wound at the back of the head, but the dress, which was of a rather superior kind to that of generality of her class in that neighbourhood, was not disordered. There were no signs of a struggle, and it is conjectured that the poor creatures must have been a willing accessory to the moment that the knife was drawn across her throat. At all hours of the night, People are passing this archway, but no screams were heard or any sound to excite suspicion.
The particular locality where the crime was committed is known as Swallows Gardens. Those comprise a series of railway arches running under the Great Eastern Railway, and many of the railway men who are not on and off duty at all hours of the night live in the so-called garden. The police are inclined to believe that the woman's throat was cut as she was standing, and that the wound on the head was caused when she fell to the ground. It is certain that death overtook her before she could raise the alarm. The railway company's stables are on either side of the arch, and men are constantly at work there. No cries for help could have been given without their being heard. The remains of the unfortunate woman was removed speedily, possibly to Whitechapel Mortuary, where they await an inquest. The bloodstains were erased by the police, who cut in the woodwork of the side of the arch to mark the exact spot where the body was found. Later Details From the statement made by the constable to his superior officer, it is evident that the victim of this morning could only have been murdered a few seconds before the policeman arrived. The warm blood was still gushing from the throat with each expiring breath. She rolled her eyes once or twice. Her lips moved slightly, but no sound came from them. She tried to move her arm, but in a few seconds all was still. And when Dr. Phillips, who had been summoned with all haste, arrived on the scene, the woman was dead. Taking all the circumstances into consideration, the police now have no doubt in their minds that the crime was committed by the redoubtable Jack the Ripper. Evidently, the murderer heard the sound of approaching footsteps, and this accounts for the victim not having been mutilated, as has hitherto been the case. The woman is described as being of about 25, height 5 feet, brown hair and eyes, complexion pale, dressed in a black skirt and satin bodice, brown stays, black diagonal jacket trimmed with braid, white chemise and drawers, striped stockings and buttoned boots. She wore a black ribbon around her neck. In her left ear was a black vulcanite earring, the fellow to which was in her pocket. All the clothing is old and dirty. A large number of detectives from Scotland Yard are now on the scene. The Central News says the murdered woman was identified as a woman of the same unfortunate class, who states that she knew her and that they formerly lodged together at 18 Thrall Street, Spitalfields. She only knew her as Frances. She had not seen the deceased for some time, but thinks she passed her last night near the scene of the murder. Frances is quickly identified, and an inquest takes place. As with Rose and Alice, the case goes cold, and Frances's murder is never discovered. There was anger of the repeat of the violence, and some of that anger spilled into accusations that the blame for the murders was to be found with the victims themselves.
From the East London Observer, the 21st of February, 1891. The murder. Francis Coles lies at the Whitechapel mortuary today, the latest victim of a murderous ferocity that seems for one reason or another to have been directed of late years among the women who ply the most degraded of trades in the neighbourhood of Whitechapel. Her apparently mysterious death is the sensation of the hour. The manner in which her destroyer has disappeared silently and mysteriously without leaving the shadow of a clue behind is joked of with an awe bordering almost on the superstitious. Of course, there have been the usual hysterical outbursts against the police that came as a matter of course, with every one of the series of murders that was committed two or three years ago. The class of women from whom the victims of the murder or murderers have hitherto been recruited are compelled to the existence of their degrading trade to know every secluded spot and every unfrequented court, alley and byway in the district or port of the district where they ply their trade. They are as well acquainted, perhaps even better acquainted, with the extent and duration of the police beats in their neighbourhood. When the measured tread of the police constable on night duty has died away on their ears, they can tell to a, a minute, almost a second, at what time to expect it again. Secrecy is essential to their calling, and in securing secrecy they are rendering comparatively easy the task of their would-be murderer. In other words, they are accessories to their own murder. It is unfortunate for Whitechapel, certainly, that it should have formed the scene of so many of these brutal murders, unfortunate for its reputation, unfortunate for its trade, and unfortunate for its people. So long as our streets are infested with these lower-class unfortunate women, choosing for the practice of their calling the time and the place most suited for the scene and the time of their butchery, long will it be possible for this destroyer amongst us to add to his crimes with as much impunity has been the case in the past. That concludes this episode of Wicked Wednesdays, Forgotten Ripper Victims. We hope you enjoyed the show. What do you think? Were any or all of the victims murdered by Jack the Ripper? Let us know in the comments. If you did enjoy the show, we will be grateful if you could like or subscribe to our little channel. We upload five days a week. Mondays are murderous as we delve into the dark side of Regency and Victorian crime. Wednesdays are wicked where we pull together stories with a similar theme, such as Doctors of Death. Fridays are frightful where we look at crimes in a location, such as stories from the stage to murder and scandal in the aristocracy. Saturdays is Serial Killer Saturdays, 
where we investigate serial killer stories from the past. And Sundays is a bit of fun with a unique mini murder mystery where you, the listener, have a chance to solve a murderous riddle. On the last Sunday of the month, we offer a two-hour compilation of stories based around a theme. Thank you again for watching and listening. This has been News of the Times, and I am Robin Coles.